Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Morning. I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, and uh, as I said, I live down in Jamaica Plain with my family. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Amy. We have four daughters, Lily, who just turned 17, which feels criminal. Uh, Addie, who's 15, Karis, who's 13, and Amelie, who's 11. And so uh, we've been in Boston coming up on six years. And so a little bit of our story as uh, we came to Boston is how the, and how the Lord put Boston on our hearts was we took a road trip up the East Coast. I'm from Alabama. My wife's from Alaska. That's a sermon for a different day. Uh, we are in a cross-cultural relationship. Uh, we, uh, she married me before she knew what college football was, and uh, that was a mistake on her part. So uh, the first fall together, as we got together, she was like, what do you mean we're going to watch football all day? I'm like, because that's what a good red-blooded American does, right? And she didn't understand that. But uh, we figured it out over the years, and for our 10-year anniversary, we decided to drive up the East Coast. She had never seen anything on the East Coast. So uh, the first stop along the way was to stop in Boston, which I had planned this out for the trip. I'm a huge Red Sox fan, wanted to see uh, Fenway. And I wish I could say that I heard the Lord singing or angels at Fenway. And that's why I'm in Boston. It's not what happened. Um, but I love the city, fell in love with the city. But along the way, uh, we camped a couple of times in, um, in, in New Hampshire and in Vermont. And you need to understand something about me. I hate camping. Like I am a glamper, not a camper. I'm large. So sleeping on a log, like an inflatable log doesn't work for me. I was sleeping in a tent and got wet. That was a whole nother sermon for another day as well. I, I don't like camping. So for me to camp, it was an act of love for my wife. Uh, and so we have very different ideas of fun. I want to sit and eat food and she wants to go like hike. And we've come to the middle a little bit, but you know, almost 10 years ago, um, this was, this was a big thing. So she wanted to go hiking. We're in Vermont, we're in the green mountains. And I said, okay, well, how far is this hike? And she said, six miles. I was like, wonderful, let's go. And so we go up the mountain, we're, we're going along and I'm thinking like, why are we doing this? This is dumb. There's another path, another turn. And that looks steep. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And, and so finally we're going along and we get to the destination, we get to the top and it's absolutely beautiful. And I'm reminded that along the way, there was not a single turn, not a single steep hill, nothing that was wasted. And when we read in the book of John, it can often feel like some of these stories feel disconnected. Some of these stories sort of feel like, what is the point of these stories? Why are they in here? And how is this pointing us to the greater point of John's book? We need to be reminded that at the end of John, in John chapter 20, he tips us off as to what the point of everything in John is and what it's pointing us to. And his one intention is that you would believe that Jesus is God, the son, and that you would trust him with everything. And so every story in here is pointing us towards this reality that Jesus is God, the son, and that you should trust him. And if he is God, like we looked at last week at the end of chapter five, then these signs all point to him as being God, that they point beyond themselves, that everything Jesus is doing is to point that, to the fact that he is a life giver. If he's the one who can tell a man to stand up and walk, he can tell us to come out of our sinfulness and out of the grave and out of death. That He's the life giver. He's the one that you were meant to adore. That he has the authority to come into your life and to ask you to change. And when I use that word authority, many of you probably felt a little tingle run up your spine because we live in a generation that is allergic to the word authority. 
We don't like authority. And for good reason, we are skeptical of authority. When we look at the authorities in our lives, we've seen time and time again how power can be abused. It seems like all you have to do is flip on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok and you see another story about abuse happening in a school, in a workplace, political leaders, and sadly, even churches. I'm, I'm remiss this morning if I'd say that abuse of power can even happen in churches and has happened in churches. And so we've been conditioned to not trust anybody. We've been conditioned to not trust authority unless there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that we should trust that authority. And I do believe that this kind of cultural distrust of authority has filtered into the way that we see God. And I don't think anybody here this morning, if you consider yourself a Christian, is saying, I don't think, or I think that I know better than God. I don't think anybody here this morning is saying, I know more than God does, but we often live like we don't trust him. We live like that when we come to Jesus and we see what the text says and we see what it demands, we say, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to do that. And maybe you've even said words like, God, I need more proof. If God would just give me a sign, then I believe. If God would just show me a little more, then I would obey. But we would just demand another sign. And the reason I know this is that if you look at verse two, it says, and the large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They just wanted to see one more. It wasn't enough that Jesus had turned water into wine. It wasn't enough that Jesus had caused an invalid man to stand up who had not been able to walk for over 30 years. They needed to see one more sign. They missed what his signs were pointing to. But if Jesus is God, then his signs are all they're doing. They're calling us not to just ask for another sign, but to radically reorient our lives around him. And that as we do that, it leads us to real life. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water and how they point us to the life that we live and how Jesus's authority leads us to this life. The first way we see this is that Jesus challenges who you are. Jesus challenges your very identity. We see in verse one that after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And so Jesus had traveled to the other side of the sea to get away. A large crowd had begun to come around him as he'd done these miracles. And he travels because he'd, he'd healed the sick. And this desperate group of people, this people who are longing for a miracle, longing for change, are coming after him. In fact, one of the other gospel accounts says that you could see the crowd coming and walking around the lake. Jesus probably has to exhale and think, I thought I got away from them. But, it, but he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke them for coming to him with the wrong motive, but he does challenge them. He, he challenges why they're coming to him. And we see that Jesus has gone away, verse three, he's gone up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. He's looking for an opportunity to rest. He's looking for an opportunity to teach and equip them. And we see that in verse five, the crowd is coming around, lifting up his eyes and seeing that the, there was a large crowd coming toward him. He sees the crowd coming. And I want to explain the scene for you. This is much less like a church service, more like a music festival. This would be like Boston Calling. Everybody is everywhere. It is a, it's a wild frenzy. This is Woodstock. And the people are stirred up into a frenzy because Jesus has caused a spectacle and they're willing to do anything and go anywhere to get a little bit more of Jesus. It's like a few weeks ago, if you're a football fan or maybe a Taylor Swift fan and you watch the Chiefs play, people are out there at negative four degrees with a negative 25 windshield just to watch football. That is more what we're talking about. 
And so what, what has all the people so, so excited and so jacked up? If you look at verse four, you see the key. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now it may not seem like a big idea, big deal to us, but the Jews were always up for a party. There was always a feast. There was always a festival. There was always a reason to eat food and get together. But this is the key to understanding the miracle. At the Passover, this was a yearly celebration remembering God's faithfulness to his people in Egypt. That the people of Israel had been in captivity for 400 years and that God came to deliver them. And he said that he was gonna spare them if they would slaughter a lamb and paint its blood over the doorway and that the angel of death would pass over their home. And so every year, everybody would get excited and hyped about this. They would come together regardless of their political differences, regardless of their their disputes with one another. They all had one goal in mind. It was to come and to worship. And this would be uh, similar to a Red Sox World Series parade. Every year, it doesn't matter, which we need to have another one of those soon, please. Let's let's get better. Um, Everybody, no matter where you're from or what you've done, you've come together with this one purpose. This was their story. This was the one common binding thing among them that told them who they were. The Passover was their story. They were a people, a proud people who had been delivered by God. And so their entire identity had become wrapped up in this event that we were a people who've been delivered. We're a people who've been delivered by God. And what this created was this nationalistic fervor around the idea of being God's people. And so every year they would come together and every year they would hope. And they would hope because not only were they God's people, but they found themselves back in captivity. For hundreds of years, they had been bouncing from one group of people to another, one nation to another, had been conquering them and they get free and they get conquered again. And every year they would remember God's past faithfulness, thinking someone is going to come and restore us. Someone is going to come and free us. And so everything that they had done, everything that they thought, everything that they did was shaped by this idea of being a people who'd been delivered. Their obedience to the law was based on the fact that God had used Moses to deliver them from slavery. All their cultural practices were in light of the law. And when they look at Jesus, they're reading Jesus through the lens of their culture. We see in verse two, they're looking for these signs Verse 14 and 15, we see that based on these signs, they think that he may be the prophet. Verse 14, this indeed is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They believed that there was going to be a prophet greater than Moses who would come and deliver good news to them. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They had this cultural idea of who the Messiah was going to be, that he was going to come and deliver political victory. He was going to come and deliver political freedom. But here's where we see Jesus challenge them. Jesus doesn't receive their cultural, political kingship. He rejects them and retreats and says, I'm having none of that. See, every culture shapes people in certain ways and shapes us in ways that are contrary to God and his word. Because right now, you and I are being shaped by the world we live in. How you see the world what you call good, what you call flourishing is being shaped by the city of Boston. Maybe you're not from Boston, but you moved here for school or you're working for a job. Just like a river rock and a river, you are being ran over by the culture. Are you being shaped into the image that that culture wants you to be shaped into? If you're in a university or a workplace, they are trying to shape you into the image of, that, they, that they want you to be in. 
And there's this spoken or unspoken vision of the type of person that you should be. And we are shaped by our experiences. Not all this is bad. I'm, a, I'm an old millennial. I'm an elderly millennial, right? I was born in 1982. Uh, you can do the math if you want to on that. I was born in 1982. And so I saw a poll on Facebook the other day that said, do you remember X, Y, and Z as a millennial? And I do. I remember what it was like before the internet. Um, I remember it was like with a floppy disk and playing Oregon Trail and dying of dysentery. Um, I, I remember all of these. I see some of the millennials nodding and laughing. I remember what it was like to have AOL in my house for the first time. I remember what it was like to go from a cassette tape to a CD to pirating music on Napster. I hope the government's not listening. Um, I remember all of these things. These are a common experience that shaped me because of the culture that I grew up in. And so you have a dominant story that is shaping you and telling you who you are. And there are many competing visions for the ethic that Jesus offers us in the gospel. There's a political vision that's trying to shape you, whether you're on the political left or the political right. There's a vision that your sexuality or your gender is the number one definer of who you are, that even your ethnicity or your culture is who you are. These are all loading you with all sorts of presuppositions that you bring to the world and you bring to Jesus and you tend to look at Jesus through those lenses. And for many of us, we're conditioned by living in a world that we we don't expect miraculous things to happen. Uh, There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he says that we are conditioned by the world to believe that there's nothing beyond this. Though all, all that exists is what you can see, what you can taste, smell, touch, that there's nothing spiritual, that there's nothing transcendent, that you can only trust what's right here in front of you. And this shapes how you see Jesus. For many, they come to the Bible with a progressive or liberal idea about the Bible, and they read stories about Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fish into a meal that would feed thousands, or they read a story about Jesus walking in water, and they bring these presuppositions and say, there's no way that this could happen. This isn't reality. They, they look at the story of Jesus doing this and say, look, everybody was just really generous. This was like a, a first century version of socialism where everybody just shared their meal together. Except that's not what the text says. Or you read where Jesus walks on water and somebody tries to explain it scientifically and say, no, no, you don't understand. There was a sandbar in the middle of the water and Jesus found the sandbar in the middle of a hurricane and was walking out there just having a leisurely stroll. We have to pull off our cultural lenses and look at the Bible and see the fact that if God created the world, he can do whatever he wants to do. Jesus challenges your identity. And he's challenged every person's identity across time and across culture. And it means that you are not first and foremost your culture. You're not first and foremost your sexuality or your gender or your nationality. Everything about you must submit to Jesus. And here's the beauty of that is it doesn't erase those distinctions, but it shapes them for godliness. It means that God can shape you into a man or a woman to his glory. It means that your ethnicity or your race was God-given and how you were designed to glorify him, that the job you have is not your identity, but a means to glorify God and bless others. The nation you were born into, you were born into on purpose. But sometimes Jesus really challenges us, that there's some desires that feel like they're wrapped around our souls and and that, that we have to realize that finding our truest self, our truest joy comes in knowing Jesus, even if it means dying to yourself. Because the crazy upside down nature of his kingdom is when you let go of what you hold most dear, you find greater life in him. This message, this passage is really a punch in the gut for a person who's self-sufficient. 
This entire passage is about depending upon the Lord because you come to a meal that you have no ability to fulfill and you have to rely on somebody else. You're stuck in the middle of a storm that you can't get out of and Jesus has to come to you. And it can feel like a severe mercy for a person who always feels like they're in control to have that knocked off balance. But when God puts you in that place, he makes you realize that he's trying to draw you to himself. So Jesus challenges your identity. Secondly, Jesus changes what you desire. So the crowd comes together and it's fascinating that the only two miracles in the, in the entire, all, they're in all four gospels are the resurrection and the feeding of the 5,000. It's really incredible that this, this happens and it gives us a chance to cross-reference this story with the others. And one of the details that you don't see here is that when Jesus saw the people, he saw them coming to him for signs, he saw beyond their hunger. He saw beyond their their hunger to their real need that they were lost, they were hurting, they were spiritually hungry. And it says in in Matthew's account that Jesus had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Your desire lies deeper than your base desires. There's something deep inside of your soul that's desiring true satisfaction. And we see a picture of this in verse five when Jesus challenges Philip He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Philip is from the area. He's from nearby Bethesda. He's basically saying, hey, like, look, where are the food trucks? Where are the best tacos, the best empanadas? You should know you're from here. If you know me long enough, I'm going to recommend a restaurant. I love to eat. I understand where Jesus is going here. Philip, where where can we get some food? And we see in verse six that Jesus is testing him because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. This wasn't, you know, Jesus wasn't relying on Philip to come up with a plan. And in verse seven, Philip answers very practically, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii is about the equivalent of eight months salary. So imagine thousands upon thousands of dollars that you would be shelling out and everyone would get just a little bite, not enough to be satisfied. I don't know if you've ever been hungry, so hungry that you eat a little bit and it's just not enough and it just makes you angry. That's what he's talking about. And we see here it's recorded that they were trying to feed 5,000 men. And this is just the way they would have recorded the number of people there. Likely, this would have been between 12 and 20,000 people if you included women and children. In other words, what Philip is saying is it is impossible. It's impossible. There's no amount of food. We don't have enough money. Even if we were to try to go out and buy food, we'd bankrupt everybody else. There'd be no more food after today. They wouldn't even be full. What's the point in even trying And I think when we look at what Jesus is asking us to deny ourselves and trust him, this is why we settle for lesser joys over Jesus's promises. We just believe there's never really gonna be enough. That he can't actually make me happy. He can't actually be enough for me. So we go and we satisfy ourselves on the meager offerings of work and making enough money and finding a relationship. And we're just going to make the best of it because we don't think Jesus is actually going to come through. And then in verse eight, we see Andrew step in. And I think this is just such a curious verse. I think I actually saw this studying for this text for the first time that that actually this is a, a small little step of faith. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You, you see this little flicker of faith. Here, here's five barley loaves and two fish, and then the faith disappears. He brings it to Jesus and he sort of trails off. 
To give you an idea of, of what's being offered here, he's basically stealing a Lunchable from a poor boy. I mean, this is barley loaves are like little biscuits and some sardines, barely enough to feed him. This was the bread of the poor. I was having a conversation with my community group a couple of weeks ago uh, about toaster strudels. Do you remember a toaster strudel as a kid? Oh, praise God, manna from heaven, right? And so, but I knew this, if, if you grew up in a home where they had toaster strudels, you were, you were like rich. I was like Walmart Pop-Tart, like that was my family. And so if I ever got to go, go to a friend's house where they had toaster strudels, I mean, they had money. Like, I mean, I, that was not the family I grew up in. This little boy is bringing Pop-Tarts. He's bringing little biscuits and sardines. And he's like, what can we possibly do with this? And then Jesus has them sit down. In verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much green or much grass in this place. There's much grass in the place. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Is there another point in the scriptures where God told people to lay down or to sit down? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There it goes. He made my podium lay down too. So let me try this again. Let's try that again. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In the same way, the Lord is our shepherd. He calls us to sit down. And I love the, the next verse in, in Psalm 23, where it says that he restores my soul. He satisfies me. As they sit, they receive from the Lord. They're satisfied him by him and they're given as much as they wanted. Jesus multiplies this meager meal to show that he is both generous and willing to satisfy your soul. And it shows that for you to truly be satisfied in Christ, you're gonna have to give up that meager meal that you've been trying to satisfy yourself with. You're gonna have to give it up and give it to him. So what is that? We try to satisfy our thing, ourselves on things like sex and sex honestly pales in comparison to the intimacy that Jesus promises. We try to satisfy ourselves with power and, and someone's always gonna be more powerful. We're gonna try to satisfy ourselves with control, but you can't control everything. We're gonna try to satisfy ourselves with relationships, but a person can't bear the weight of our soul, which is made for eternity. You're gonna to have to take the meager meal and put it in the hands of Jesus and believe that he's going to multiply it. And you begin to see, as Alistair Beck says, that Jesus is saying that without him, without feeding on him, men and women starve eternally. He's always been the provider. And this ties back to the Passover, that in the Passover, God promised to satisfy his people. And likely what Jesus would have said as he blessed the bread was a traditional Jewish blessing where he'd open his hands and the Jewish rabbi would say something like this, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Do you trust Jesus to change what you want most, that, that he'll truly satisfy you? And if you're going to get that, you're going to have to let go, sit down and receive from him. Now, as Jesus retreats away, we see the story begin to shift and we see how the story of the 5,000 and the walking on the water are connected. Thirdly, we see that Jesus comforts when you fear. And this is such an interesting part of the story. Jesus draws away in verse 15 
And then in verse 16, it says that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, that they were sent ahead by Jesus, according to Matthew's gospel. And in verse 17, I guess they get impatient, they get into the boat and they start across the sea to Capernaum. Now it says that it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they go ahead of Jesus, they get out onto the water and the sea begins to get rough. Now you need to understand something. The Jewish people did not have the same idea of the ocean that you and I did. You and I get excited, who in here is a beach person? There were not a lot of beach people there because the ocean was terrifying. You know, Peter didn't have a, have a wall hanging and said, the ocean fixes everything. He did, that was not in his house. He wasn't collecting seashells. For us, you go to the beach and you feel re-energized and you know, you're walking out there trying to find this. That's not what they did. Ancient people were terrified of the ocean because it represented chaos. If you look at all these mythological creatures like the Kraken and the Leviathan, they were imagining these water creatures that were going to come and kill you. It was open water meant death. So when the winds pick up and they're out there in the middle of the ocean, they feel like they're going to die. They're so convinced that they're three to four miles out into the water. And by the way, to give you an idea of how big the Sea of Galilee was, it was 13 miles long by five miles wide. So they're already way out into the ocean, way out into the sea. And they see Jesus. They're so convinced they're going to die that they think they see a ghost. And you know what that ghost is coming to do in their minds? It's coming to collect their souls because they're idiots and they're on the water in the middle of a storm. They're looking out and they're thinking, it is over. Life is done. There is no turning back. By the way, this is a rebuttal to anybody who thinks that Jesus is walking by the sea. Because if you expect to see Jesus walking by the sea, two and a half miles out into the water in the middle of a storm, you're not going to see him. He's in the middle of the sea. They couldn't see very far beyond themselves. And the reaction wasn't, oh, like Jesus is out for a nice stroll. Their reaction was, there's a ghost on the water and we're gonna die. They're freaking out. And this is what it feels like when you and I are afraid. When we're stuck in the middle of something that feels like we're stuck in the middle of a storm, we look around and there's no getting out. There's no turning back. They're three to four miles out. They can't keep pressing forward. It's at least another nine or 10 miles. They can't turn side to side. It seems impossible. And you may be in the middle of something right now that feels just like that, that you look out right now and it feels like death. You can't turn back and you have no clue how you're getting to the other side in one piece. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with fear and anxiety and doubt? I'm going to give you two wrong options first before we get to the right option. First option is to bury it. And some of us, like I grew up Irish and there's this, you know, this tendency to just bury it down for centuries. Um, some of you may have grown up in a family or a culture like that. You don't have to bury it. You don't have to bury your fear, your anxiety, or your doubts. You don't have to suck it up and try harder or pretend that they're not there. You don't have to bury it but you also don't have to buy into it. We can get so whipped up into a frenzy about our anxiety and our depression and our doubt and our fears that that becomes everything. It becomes all encompassing and that there's no other thing but the thing you see sitting in front of you. I had a friend who struggled with clinical depression and he said he described it like staring at a wall from six inches away. It's all you can see. But when it comes to something like doubt, Doubt works like that because doubt becomes that unquestionable thing in our lives. 
I know this morning, maybe some of you are doubting with the existence of God or doubting some of the, the promises of scripture. And what we often do is we often put doubts in the place of God because we make doubts unquestionable, but not God and his word. I wanna encourage you this morning to doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts and find the solid ground that Jesus promises because the answer for you and I is the same that it is for the disciples and it's that Jesus calls to us. Verse 20, he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm with you in the middle of your fear. I'm with you in the middle of your doubts. I'm with you in the middle of your anxiousness. I'm with you in the middle of your depression. The Lord is there. And every time in the Bible where someone is told not to fear, it's because someone has brought the presence of God to them. Jesus dispels fear by telling you who he is, that he's there with you. Matt Chandler says that you and I are not promised a life of ease, but a life of presence. Jesus is with you in the middle of life's storms. Receive him, receive his guidance with gladness. If you look at verse 21, we see another miracle. Then they were glad to take him into the, doubt, uh, into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They let Jesus in the boat and before they knew it, they were at the shore. Jesus is going to guide you and see you through the problems of life. But the issue is that you can't just have Jesus take your fear. He has to get in the boat with you. He has to be the one who is guiding your life. Now, as we close, I just want to give some principles uh, about, from Jesus as he offers what I want to call a Godward life, a life that these signs are all pointing to. So lastly, Jesus communicates principles for a Godward life, four ideas real quickly. First of all, is that time alone with the Lord is vital. Jesus, we see him twice draw away to be alone with God. And before you can be used by God, God has to become sweet to you. Jesus is used in a mighty way in this passage, but it comes from spending time away with the Lord and his word and prayer. Secondly, is even small faith matters. Jesus doesn't crush Andrew for his, his small faith, his fleeting faith that started out and then kind of petered away. He uses it. Weak faith is saving faith that the object is strong. Thirdly, even small offerings can be effective. The meager offering of five barley biscuits and two fish, Jesus multiplies. We bring such meager offerings, such meager gifts, and the Lord is the one who empowers you for his work. And so when you think about that, when we think about the calling God has given City on a Hill Brighton and City on a Hill Forest Hills and the other churches in our network and in the Send Network beyond us, we're being called to do something impossible. We're being called to reach our unbelieving neighbors with the gospel. We're being called to see God bring dead people to life. We're being called to see marriages restored and people coming out of addiction and, and people find life in Jesus. You and I can't do that. The strongest, most gifted person in this room is not equipped. We bring our small, meager offerings to Jesus and he multiplies them through the work of the local church. And then lastly, the goal is always deeper dependence. God wants you to be with him. Jesus came to be with you, that you would depend upon him completely, that you would reorient your life around him. And you need to understand that if God is the God over the feeding and he's the God over the storm, he's willing to bring you to places that will bring you to your knees, to make you stop depending upon yourself so that you can depend upon him. Let's pray.